Good morning and welcome to our Imposters Part 3, Healthcare Financial Fraud. This is uh, one of our number of, seri of a series that we've undertaken through our TMIT research testbed, and we're delighted to have you join us today. I'm Dr. Charles Denham. Uh, I am the founder and chairman of TMIT Global, and this is our 209th recorded webinar. We are now recording them both uh, by video and streaming them as well as uh, preparing them by as uh, a podcast. And we're delighted to have you join us today. Uh, we'll start off with a short video clip regarding this issue of the public trust and the importance of trust and fraud. When American hospitals were built, they were built by their communities to serve their communities. It's an incredible heritage. Many of them were built by the wealthy business leaders as a donation or a charity. Many were built by churches. They were built by everyday members of the community to serve that community. Their charters were incredible. Mr. Hopkins dedicated Johns Hopkins to serve, quote unquote, the indigent of the city. Regardless of one's race, creed, or ability to pay, this is our great public trust. Hospitals were built on a great public trust. When polio affected 20,000 people in the United States, disabling people, putting them in an iron lung machine, one of the worst things you could possibly imagine, Jonas Salk invented the vaccine. He was told by many of his colleagues and business friends, you should get a patent. This will be the greatest money-making patent in the history of patents. And he said, no, this will be a gift to the American people, the property of humanity. We talk about drug pricing today. Look at our great heritage of the public trust. All of us that see patients at every level, doctors, nurses, physical therapists, when you see a patient, we have inherited this great public trust that allows us to have an intimate relationship, one of the most beautiful things in our profession, and we have that bequeathed to us from our predecessors because for centuries, health professionals have earned the public trust. According to one philosopher, who else is an advocate for equality than the witnesses of birth and death? That is our great medical heritage. When I see a patient, I need them to trust me. Sometimes we have to make tough decisions and we need to make them together. I rely on that public trust. In that no other profession can you put a knife to someone's skin within a second of meeting them and they'll let you do it because of the public trust. They will tell you secrets they've never told anybody their entire life. They will tell you within seconds of meeting you because of that great public trust. But today, that great public trust is being threatened by a new business model in some areas of healthcare that is price gouging. Let's call a spade a spade and use the patient-centered term, price gouging. 
and even predatory billing. You know, I've got friends uh, in my department of surgery. We do a lot of cancer surgery, and they've asked me, why don't you come to our cancer research ideas meeting anymore? You seem too busy to come. And I tell them I'd love to come, but you know, I'm working on this other stuff. And they, they'll ask me, why are you doing this other research on pricing in healthcare and the markups that patients encounter and payment reform? And what is this about you going to courts, court cases, defending patients pro bono who have been sued by hospitals to have their wages garnished? And I tell them, you know, 64% of the American people say they've avoided or delayed medical care for fear of the bill. We have a public trust crisis right now in healthcare. And we need to rebuild that public trust. Our cures. So that is Marty Macri, Dr. Marty Macri, or Macri, has, uh, as I think he pronounces it. He's been one of our leaders in patient safety and quality for some time and made that transition because he saw such an enormous, harmful series of events uh, that have happened in the evolution of our healthcare. And we'll mention his book a little bit earlier uh, or a little bit later. The Price We Pay, which is excellent. We highly recommend it. There'll be another book that we highly recommend it as well. So today what we're covering is, and we have been covering the areas of harm to patients and families and workplace violence and a number of areas, but fraud is a major issue. Today, an unpopular topic, and not one that we would normally present to our patient safety community, but a vital one that we really need to address is the harm that can be done to our patients, families, and our caregivers through fraud. And that is in, in doctor's offices and providers of all ill, hospitals, and insurers as well. And we can't in 90 short minutes, for those of you that are getting CEU credits for nursing and CME credits for physicians, uh, can we cover this? Can we even cover it much longer? And for those of you that are on the podcast, we'll have a much longer version as we will be presenting an OIG video that actually addresses multiple areas. This is a crisis, as Dr. McCary has said. The burden of healthcare debt in America is enormous. And for those of us in patient safety and quality, um, we play a role if we work at a hospital and we don't speak up, if we see upcoding of billing and billing for procedures that shouldn't be done and procedures that shouldn't be done at all. It's incumbent upon us to, to recognize this and know that we are part of the problem. And we've all been part of the problem, those of us that have been medical practice and we, under, we have consultants say, this is how you manage revenue cycle. And if we don't pay close attention to it, it even ourselves could do something in a more complex way in order to be paid more, feeling that, well, Medicare is not paying us enough on the lower uh, the lower, less technical version of what we might do, and we could do a more technical version to treat a condition, and it might be better and it might not, but the bias is there because of payment. The Institute for Healthcare Improvement has been just one of our guiding lights, and Don Berwick, one of, a mentor to so many of us in the work that he had done in patient safety and quality with Carol Harridan and a number of others, Roger Resar, and uh, so many others. The Institute for Healthcare Improvement just uh, recently, just in August, 
address this issue. Highly recommend you go and read it, but over 100 million Americans, individuals, have health care debt. It disproportionately impacts marginalized group, groups. And what Dr. McCary said, there are groups that just will not and individuals that won't go for care. I've been helping uh, the brother of a friend of mine who refuses to have uh, heart valve surgery because of the expense. And he likely is a time bomb uh, with this cardiac problem. I spent no less than an hour this morning and many hours over the last two or three weeks trying to help a patient that does have insurance get into one of our leading cancer centers and he's not being admitted because of a technicality on wording of the referral letter, and he has a leukemia that is threatening his life. Now, you can hear, so, and there's so much misinformation, malinformation, and disinformation about any topic that has any political ramifications, and when we look at how many people are having bankruptcy, we know bankruptcy is a big issue with medical debt. How much? Do we really know who's done the best studies? Let other experts address it, but we know it's an enormous problem. Now, this program today is part of a series that we've covered in workplace violence and fraud, and we've been addressing a number of areas. The imposters and our, uh, our program in July was just shocking to us. It took a long time to prepare it, and we just could not believe uh, the imposters that are caregivers. But the threat to caregiver staff and educators that uh, that we that we undertook, uh, the systems issues, threat impact scenarios, workplace violence, um, the hunting and howlers or the hunters and howlers, and uh, the uh, threat safety science issues that are absolutely critical. So we've been covering this as a series. Um, and our program is really one where we're delivering the content because we have developed a community of practice of those experts and those frontline practitioners and organizations that want to learn together. And what we try to do is then do a, a lot of course R&D and we'll be announcing shortly a threat a threat assessment program uh, that will be terrific, very comprehensive, and this is one we're developing right now that we'll share in some way in, in our uh, November webinar and podcast, but we do course R&D, and then what we do is identify what competencies and what knowledge needs to be delivered and measured and tested, and then finally, we look for certification opportunities uh, to create incentives, and this is uh, in no small part our work in workplace violence will, will be a part of that. Our MedTAC program, where we focus on bystander rescue care, is a really good example of this, where we uh, work with delivering certifications for both knowledge and completion of core content with the American Heart Association, the American College of Surgeons Stop the Bleed program, uh, and a number of others uh, that we uh, have incorporated into what we deliver. Now, this series today, you'll hear from John Nance as a reactor today. However, we've had a number of terrific leaders, uh, and we will hear the voice of the patient here in just a moment from Jennifer Dingman. However, we have, uh, we have JDs, PhDs, we have uh, law enforcement leaders like uh, Vicki King and Chief uh, Bill Adcox. We have emergency medicine leaders like um, uh, Dr. Casey Clements at the Mayo Clinic, critical care leaders and experts in simulation, uh, such as Dr. Gregory Boats. And Randy Steiner is the head of emergency response at the University of California, Irvine. We've expanded our domain of work, not just from 
healthcare and not just hospitals or outpatient care, but we've expanded the work that we're doing in safety to our higher education and K through 12 uh, areas. We always uh, try to find areas where we can contribute uniquely. And there are a lot of people in patient safety covering a lot of the traditional areas. And this is why we've uh, expanded. And we're delighted to have Jennifer Dingman, who's the founder of Pulse. She's been a uh, wonderful contributor to patient safety, a tireless contributor to a team uh, of ours of patient advocates that's been operating for more than 12 years. And she often is our voice of the patient. And we like to begin with the voice of the patient and end with the voice of the patient. We're delighted to have Ginny open us today. Thank you, Dr. Denham, for your kind introduction. I'm looking forward to today's program. I'd like to thank everybody for being here today. And please share the recording with your friends, family members, and colleagues. I'll hand it back over to you, Doctor. Thank you, Jenny. And what we'll do is we will uh, be moving quickly through our usual introduction. Uh, on the, for those of you that are on the podcast, uh, we do have the addresses and we recommend that you download the slides if you wish and the transcripts uh, of our program. And we have the social media addresses. We're not as active as we'd like to be. Uh, our purpose, mission, and our core values are critical to us. Uh, we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Today, we're really focused on the patient families and the caregivers that are caught in this bind of this, uh, this violation of trust that the financial perspective has really uh, focused uh, on and focused us on. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money and create value in the communities we serve and the ventures we undertake. And our core values, although we fail, I'm sure, constantly, we try to live integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. They spell I care as a mnemonic, and we uh, attempt to live those values. For those of you that are on the podcast, we have a slide addressing those that have been contributors to this entire series, and we have no disclosures that uh, uh, of any product, service, or technology that, uh, that uh, will be covered, and so no conflicts of interest. TMIT Global, the high-performer web, high webinar series, has been entirely funded by direct and private family philanthropy. In no direct, indirect, or affiliated financial support has ever been or ever will be provided by healthcare, pharmaceutical, or device companies. Uh, TMIT was, I founded it in, in uh, 1984. Uh, we will have our 40th anniversary this coming July, and God willing, uh, we will continue to deliver these programs at no cost. Uh, just a couple of highlights. We undertook actually the world's largest family unit study during the COVID crisis um, to help us understand how to focus on uh, readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. For those on the podcast, we use this as a, as a cycle. Uh, this is a constant improvement cycle. And then as we came out of the COVID crisis, although we're not clearly out today. We have been using this to focus on safety, patient safety and safety at our schools, K through 12 and our universities. Uh, we started out 
has a uh, network, a research network of over 3,000 uh, hospitals and 3,000 communities, having worked with the, with, uh, the group purchasing organizations, of which one we helped merge, and collaborating with, with the other, the second largest one, and then working with the LeapFrog group and working with the NQF and a number of organizations, including the IHI, um, we had grown to about 3,100 or 3,000 communities, and we have 500 subject matter experts who all contribute their time and energy at no cost uh, to our mission. And so all of our speakers uh, from square one, we've never paid a speaker because they all want to contribute to you, the community. And that's why we don't ask for donations um, for this program. And we try to try to reduce the barrier. So when we look at harm to consumers, harm to caregivers, harm to schools. Uh, we talk about so much under the waterline. And in our focus, we have been focusing um, on a lot of the physical harm issues. And those in the podcast, we use the graphic of an of a, uh, iceberg. Uh, we started a community of practice in 2018, focused on the 30 leading causes of death or harm to patients and their families. And uh, these are the areas that keep leaders up at night. Now, graphically, we depict them and uh, we uh, tend to focus on what are insider threats in those 30 areas and what those might be that are, that generate harm and financial harm to patients for those that are watching the video uh, you will see financial harm to patients is one of those issues and we know that predatory building and again and, and uh, aggressive uh, fraudulent approaches to uh, compensation have had an enormous impact on uh, our uh, ecosystem of our country. So the topics we're going to cover today, some a little bit more than others, are fraud committed by medical providers, fraud committed by insurers, and deceptive and aggressive collections uh, issues that are complicated. They're not easy. And if you want to go back to see the multiple areas that we've covered in fraud, and we graphically depict them as kind of a, a wheel with spokes on them, uh, go to our webinar of October 21st, uh, 19, uh, 2021, and you'll be able to watch an overview of these issues. However, today we're focused on about three of them of this uh, topic. And the, those that we're really focused on are the fraudulent issues regarding insurer fraud, hospital fraud, physician fraud. So in the law, fraud is, is, is defined as intentional deception to secure unfair or unlawful gain or deprive a victim of a legal right. It can violate civil law uh, and a fraud victim may sue the perpetrator to avoid the fraud or recover monetary compensation or in criminal law, fraud can be undertaken by a perpetrator that may be prosecuted and imprisoned by governmental authorities, or it may cause no loss of money, property, or legal right, but still be an element of another civil or criminal wrong. So that's a pretty broad definition that we have. Now, we started off this video about 19 minutes ago, this podcast and video, by addressing uh, Marty McCurry's book, The Price We Pay. And you heard about a four-minute introduction. We will have posted on our website the entire 12-minute TED Talk, which is really, really awesome. And I highly recommend everybody uh, listen to it. He's a wonderful speaker and very focused on this new area. And as he said, 
uh, Marty is actually going out when he can to be at pro bono an expert witness when hospitals are suing their constituents, their customers, and some of the customers are even their own staff. He mentions in his book, uh, one community in New Mexico where the population is approximately 25,000 people, and there are 22,000 lawsuits um, focused on getting more money uh, out of that community. And so uh, he uses it as an example of what, uh, what a terrible problem that we have. Now, for those that are watching the longest version of this program, we will have a longer version of a tape uh, from or recording from Dr. Uh, Bricker. Uh, he has addressed in this, in what we're discussing today, hospital and doctor billing fraud and abuse, spot it, fix it, and stop it. And we also will have the full-length video from the public affairs specialist at the office of the OIG. I highly recommend that you put, the, put these on in their full length and, and pay attention to them because there's, such, uh, there's so much that we can learn from, uh, from what they have uh, to share. They really, uh, they really have provided uh, a, a terrific uh, opportunity uh, for us to learn. And I, uh, and I really recommend all of the programs that Dr. Bricker does, his uh, A Healthcare to Z uh, program, and you can watch him on YouTube. And today uh, you will see a, sh a short clip of his program. What we've done to make it a little clearer for you, those of you that are viewing our webinar, that we have uh, cleaned up um, some of the text on the slides. And so you'll see that we've added those slides uh, uh, for you. But let's hear from uh, Dr. Bricker. He'll tell you a little bit about his background and uh, tell you about um, the mission of what he's uh, trying to share with us. So I am Dr. Eric Bricker. Uh, I actually got as a hospital finance consultant before going to medical school. Then I went to medical school at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I then did my residency in internal medicine at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and actually uh, worked as a hospitalist physician in the Dallas area at one of the Baylor hospitals in Plano, which is a suburb of Dallas. And I was the co-founder of a healthcare navigation company called Compass Professional Health Services, where we helped people navigate the U.S. healthcare system and their health insurance for 11 years. And we did this for 2,000 uh, companies and about 1.8 million people. And then we sold Compass to Alight Solutions in 2018. And I continued to make healthcare finance education videos on YouTube and LinkedIn as part of A Healthcare Z to continue to educate everyone about the inner workings of the U.S. healthcare systems, or the rather the inner lack of workings of the U.S. healthcare system. Um, and I'm now also the medical director for Simple Pay Health, which is an alternative health plan. Now, on to today's topic of fraud and abuse. So let's talk about the size of billing fraud and abuse. So it is estimated that approximately three to 10% of all healthcare spending is fraud and abuse. And that's according to the FBI, which obviously investigate that uh, for uh, Medicare and Medicaid, but is also the case for uh, commercial insurance as well, which Many of you are associated with commercial insurance, whether you be a broker, benefit consultant, HR, uh, various vendor, people at insurance carriers yourselves. So that means that if you had a group of a thousand employees, an employer with a thousand employees, let's say it was manufacturing or it could be a municipality, typically 
they spend about $10,000 per employee per year that's on the plan, which means that the, the total healthcare spend for that plan would be about $10 million a year. So if you take three to 10% of that $10 million, that means that that group of a thousand employees is spending about 300,000 to $1 million a year uh, on claims that are fraudulent or as a result of abusive billing. So now CMS, the Centers for Medicaid Services actually breaks down fraud, waste, and abuse into four categories. So interestingly, the first category are just billing mistakes, okay? So this is this is payment in error, but it's happening because of a quote-unquote honest mistake. So mistakes happen, and as a result, employers pay out money that they really don't owe. The next is waste. An example of waste would be like excessive testing. And we're not, waste is a, is a huge problem. We're not gonna talk about waste today. So we're specifically gonna talk about three and four. So three is billing abuse by doctors and hospitals and other healthcare professionals. And billing abuse might be an example would be like upcoding. And then there's billing fraud, which is the fourth category, which is just out and out deception in the form of an example would be like billing for services that never occurred at all. So what we, have heard from as an introduction is uh, the magnitude of the problem is enormous. And those of you that see on the slides, uh, the what we've done is, is, is taken these slides of Dr. Bricker and just made them a little bit more clear. Billing mistakes, waste, abuse, deceptive fraud. So he will then dig down into that area. Now, there are some financial incentives for physicians. And so we'll ask, yeah, we'll take a short clip from his full program there to just give you uh, the information that he wants you to know. Let's, because of course, one of the themes here on A Healthcare Z is to follow the money and to talk about the underlying incentives that drive much of the behavior. So when it comes, because you got to remember that what drives healthcare costs is literally the physician's orders. So it's the physicians that are writing the prescriptions. It's the physicians that are ordering the tests. It's the physicians that are deciding to take or not take somebody to the ORs. So the decision-making that literally drives if something is done, what is done, where it is done, is driven by the pen and the typing into the computer of the doctor. Doctor. So we need to understand the financial incentives for doctors. And there was actually a survey of physicians that it was published in a journal, not, not JAMA, but another uh, journal that the American Medical Association puts out um, that found, that, as the survey results showed, that just under 53% of income for doctors comes in the form of salary. So in other words, when doctors get paid, it's typically a combination of sources, right? So about half is from salary, and then 31.8% is based upon their individual quote-unquote productivity. Now, productivity is a euphemism within uh, healthcare for how much you bill. In other words, about 32% of a physician's income per this survey is based upon how much they bill because we live in a fee-for-service environment. The vast majority of payment 
is fee for service. And when you hear about quote unquote value-based payments, remember that for commercial insurance, and I did another health jersey video on this, that carriers have quote unquote value-based payments with only half of the doctors and hospitals. And of those half that they have value-based payment arrangements with, only 10% at most of the overall compensation is actually based on quote unquote value or quality. The other 90% is just straight fee for service. So just understand that for half the docs and hospitals out there, it's straight fee for service. And then for the other half of doctors out there, it's 90% fee for service. So we still live in a dramatically fee for service environment. Okay. Now, continuing on with physician compensation. So, and then 9% is from the overall practice performance. In other words, practice financial performance. So it's, it's your individual, how much you bill, and then how much is left in the kitty for the practice as well. Then there's 4.1% in bonuses and 2.5% in other. Now, let's just assume that that other is actually based on quality. Isn't that interesting that the financial incentives for doctors, like, if let's just say that that 2.5% for quality, that means that 97.5% of physician financial incentive is not based on quality. So that's just, and that's an important thing to understand. Okay, so 19% of doctors are paid salary only. Okay, so that means that there is financial incentive to bill more. Now, of course, we would, we would hope that this would all be in a, a non-fraudulent, non-abusive fashion, but that unfortunately is not the case. So as we discuss this and we kind of just look at the takeaway, still the majority of the driving force of healthcare costs are the physician's pen. The instrument is not the scalpel, it is the physician's pen, and that a disproportionate fraction of the decisions have a certain financial incentive. And as Dr. Bricker pro properly says, we hope that those are not handled improperly, but there is the potential risk that they may be so. And so the next issue is upcoding or right coding. And what he really means by that is that once the participation requirements change and there's a greater incentive to use different verbiage in what physicians use or hospital use, they can maximize the codes and upcode. And we pray that they don't, but we know that this is a really common problem. If you read the books of Dr. McCary and Marshall Allen, uh, Don't Pay the First Bill, you find that the huge proportion of bills are in, end up with something more expensive or even procedures, product services that have never been delivered. And this is this um, revenue cycle consulting bias that has occurred where uh, many uh, people have had consultants come in and many times the physicians and even those leading the hospital do not know that they're actually perpetrating fraud because what's that was actually delivered is not actually what was coded. Let me give you an example of sepsis. So sepsis is the systemic whole body manifestation of an infection. 
So you can, so typically you have an infection localized to a certain area. You can have a bladder infection, a UTI. You can have a kidney infection, which is called pyelonephritis. You can have a lung infection, which is pneumonia. You can have a skin infection, which is called cellulitis. Okay. If that infection causes systemic symptoms like fever or an increased heart rate or an increased respiratory rate, or an increased white blood cell count, right? The white blood cells are part of your immune system that when you get a blood test, if your white blood cell count is, is very high or very low, that's indicative that your immune system is fighting an infection. Then those are uh, signs that the infection is having systemic effects. And so um, the reimbursement for sepsis was changed by Medicare back in 2008, where Medicare started to reimburse more for, specifically for sepsis. Now, this impacts commercial insurance plans because the commercial insurance plans, their reimbursement oftentimes sort of, uh, the way that the hospitals then negotiate reimbursement oftentimes parallels Medicare. So in other words, once Medicare started paying more for sepsis, the hospitals would then go to the insurance carriers and like, well, we want you to pay us more for sepsis as well. It's not just the higher reimbursement from Medicare that's happening. You as Blue Cross United Cigna Aetna are also going to increase your reimbursement. I won't get into the details of how they specifically negotiate that contract, but just know that the higher reimbursement for sepsis applies to commercial insurance as well. So Medicare reimbursement for pneumonia without sepsis, so just the lung infection without the sepsis, is $19,000, $19,600. But the reimbursement, if you have pneumonia, but you have these other systemic effects like fever, and increased white blood cell count, increased heart rate, increased respiratory rate, is almost $24,000. So in other words, the reimbursement is 21% higher if you have sepsis than if you just have pneumonia. And so what happened was is that, and then this, so this applies to commercial insurance as well. So that means that the commercial insurance tent is anywhere from, so that is what, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. So basically it's four grand more per inpatient stay on average. Now, commercial insurance is about 2.4 to seven times more. Well, if you take the four times the seven, that means that the sepsis reimbursement by commercial insurance plans is potentially $28,000 per hospital admission more than it used to be if you code for sepsis as opposed to coding for pneumonia. And so what happened as a result of that? In 2008, when they changed, there was a study, they, they said, okay, well, what is the rate of diagnoses or, or coding of sepsis versus coding of pneumonia from 2008 when the rule was initially changed versus 2017 after all the hospitals and doctors had actually had enough time to change their coding practices. And they found that the coding for sepsis caused the cases of sepsis to increase from 248,000 in 2008 to 541,000 in 2017. It more than doubled. Now, did it more than double because sepsis itself like was much more common that people just started having much more systemic infections than they used to have? No, of course not. 
The reason is because the coding of the visits changed because the reimbursement for the visits changed. Likewise, the coding for pneumonia during that same period of time went down. So it went from 210,000 cases of pneumonia down to 115,000 cases of pneumonia. So here you have, now, if you ask a hospital or a doctor, they'll say, no, this is not upcoding at all. This is, um, this is right coding. So what we're hearing is uh, the upcoding opportunity. Now, could it be that sepsis was not uh, coded properly before? Sure, that argument could be made. And we're, we are not the experts in this. We are kind of pulling back the curtain to say, let's ask the right questions. But I think it's absolutely critical for those of you that are at hospitals um, to under, understand that outside advisors are starting to understand this and that we have a moral obligation, that sacred trust that Marty McCary brought up earlier that we opened with is, is absolutely vital. And this is not just business. This is really, really important for us to understand. And, and I think it's important that we need to focus on it. Now, uh, let's look at, uh, at, at, we all know Southwest Airlines, Let's look at a example of outright fraud that is extremely common. And as you've heard, it's very much more common than we all thought. Now, let me give you an example of out, out and out fraud. So we're gonna go through a couple now, obviously many of you are familiar with ProPublica, which is a fantastic um, online news source. It is a, it's a non-for-profit news source that does uh, in, in-depth investigative journalism. It's fantastic. I have a, um, a friend who I've gotten to know over the years by the name of Marshall Allen, who used to write for ProPublica. And he wrote, and he does a lot of, or I should say did do a lot of their investigative journalism on healthcare. And he did an investigation on, he's done several investigations on billing fraud, one of which was published in 2019, was about a personal trainer in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who actually obtained multiple NPI numbers. And the NPI number is the individual identifier by Medicare for a doctor. I have an NPI number. Your doctor has an NPI doctor. Any doctor that bills has an NPI number. And guess what? Medicare like didn't check on your credentials when you <laughs> applied for an NPI number. So of course it's all done through a website and you're like, yeah, I went to this medical school and yeah, I completed this residency. But this personal trainer lied on uh, his NPI website for Medicare and got NPI numbers. Medicare took and in order to build commercial insurance, you have to give the commercial insurance your NPI number. And so all the commercial insurance companies just assumed that because that he had a Medicare NPI number, that he was a legitimate quote unquote healthcare provider. In this case, that he was he was masquerading as a physical therapist, but he was not a physical therapist. He was a personal trainer. And so he billed United, Aetna and Cigna for $4 million over multiple years for obviously fully insured plans, but also self-funded plans, including Southwest Airlines. And this personal trainer was billing insurance for personal training sessions. 
he would help you lift weights and help you do burpees and, you know, mountain climbers and all this sort of stuff. And he would tell the, um, the, the, the customers, the clients that look, I can do personal training and your insurance will pay for it. Isn't that wonderful? This became so popular at Southwest Airlines that the pilots and the flight attendants and the baggage handlers and all these people that were using him as their personal trainer, it's spread by word of mouth within Southwest Airlines to be like, oh, this is great. Our insurance pays for personal training. They didn't know. They believed the personal trainer. And then the personal trainer then billed for physical therapy sessions he didn't bill for personal training. You can't bill for personal training, but he would for we would bill for for physical therapy. I mean, this was clearly fraud, right? He, here, here's where the story really gets interesting. He was caught by his ex-wife. <laughs> I won't get into the details, but they have a child together. The the um the personal trainer husband gave the child his iPad. The child then took his iPad to his mom's house, and then the personal trainer continued to get text messages on his iPad that the kid had. And so the mom was like, let me look at this. And so she started looking at these text messages on the iPad. And that's how she's like, whoa, he's a personal trainer. And the the the, the text messages were about like, you know, billing and all this sort of stuff. And he and Mark personal training. And so he, she and her father actually contacted United, Aetna, and Cigna, and they told them about this. And United, Aetna, and Cigna wouldn't do anything about it. Now, of course, are not monoliths. I guarantee you that there were people within United, Cigna, and Aetna that probably wanted to do something about this, but that that con that's information from the uh the the mom and her father like didn't make its way the bureaucracy within the carrier was such that it stopped them before like the people who took in the information like essentially like didn't care they're like whatever and this is one of the problems with massive healthcare organizations it's just massive healthcare organizations are huge are hugely bureaucratic there's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer and when you have all these layers of bureaucracy bureaucracy that causes large organizations to be highly unresponsive to their customers Large bureaucratic organizations that do not have competition tend to be highly unresponsive to their customers. So here, this organization was wasting Southwest Airlines money, and they were being told that they were wasting Southwest and Southwest Airlines money, and they didn't do about it. And I will tell you, as a result, Southwest Airlines ended up changing their carrier. Because when this hit the news, it was a huge deal, blah, blah, blah. So you can imagine uh, Southwest Airlines was like, well, we can't have this happening. So they changed their carrier. So that's a tremendously uh, powerful example of outright fraud. However, we're also seeing people in a predatory way taking advantage of in a network and out of network and prior authorizations and so let's uh, we'll we'll show the last clip of 
Dr. Bricker uh, regarding uh, prior authorizations, and then uh, or not the very last, but uh, the last clip on this component. United's like, okay, look, we're going to decrease our prior authorizations by 23%. We're going to go from 13 million to 10 a year. We, we at United, we realize the burden that this is for, uh, for um, doctor's offices. And we realize that this non-payment through prior authorizations is, is financially constricting the cash flow of the doctors and hospitals. Okay, that's fine. That's a 23% decrease in the number of prior authorizations. That does not mean it is a 23% decrease in the amount of money that requires prior authorization. That is not 23% of the total claims spend that goes through the prior authorization. And that is because of what is referred to as the Pareto principle. Now, this is the number one most important slide that I'm going to go over today because everybody who works in healthcare finance has to have a detailed understanding of the Pareto principle. In my opinion, it is healthcare finance malpractice if you do not understand the Pareto principle. So I am going to blow this slide up even more. So it is the 80-20 rule, meaning that you have a chart here where you have the, let's just say on the x-axis, this is the number of prior authorizations, and they are broken down into five tranches of 20% each. So 20% of the prior authorizations, another 20% of the prior authorizations, another, another, another. There's five tranches, so this adds up to 100% of the prior authorizations. Now, here you have the amount of money per prior authorizations because some prior authorizations are for procedures that only cost 20, you know, $250. And other procedure, other prior authorizations are for procedures that cost $250,000. And the point in the 80-20 rule, is that 80% of the claim spend or the reimbursement that requires prior authorization is in only 20% of the actual prior authorizations. And that is referred to as the Pareto principle. Pareto was a uh, an Italian economist way um, back, almost in the Middle Ages. It might've been the 17 or the 1800s. Okay, now um, it stratifies even more within that 20%. The top 4% of prior authorizations are actually responsible for 50% of the money that flows through prior authorizations. Now, notice the next 20% is only 12% of the dollars. The next 20% is only 5% of the dollars. The next 20% is only 2% of the dollars. And then the bottom 20% is only 1% of the dollars. That means that potentially if United decreased their prior authorization count by 20%, they will have only decreased the amount of money impacted by that decrease in prior authorizations by barely more than 1%. So now, so what we are, what we want to do is just be able to describe how inefficient the system is when we consider uh, these prior authorizations and when we consider the out of network uh, issues. 
And so I had this happen with my son's heart surgery, where the hospital uh, said, yes, you are, you have prior authorization, we are within the network. And it turns out that um, the anesthesiologist said, oh, well, we're not in the network. Now they're hospital based. And how were we to know that we would have to go to a hospital based physician to find out whether they were out of network and the fee that I, the enormous fee that I had to pay out a network fee was much more than the heart surgeon for the anesthesiologist. So it's important that we understand uh, why these things are absolutely critical and why it's important to understand the in-network and out-of-network, especially for those of you that all of us are a patient and many of you are caregivers, but all of you who are caregivers are a patient with family members. So we'll show a second example of fraud here uh, regarding out of network. So now in this case in New Jersey, there were, there were multiple physical therapy practices that were out of network and they would bill state employees for the state of New Jersey and then large school systems that were also on the state insurance plan for medical massage and acupuncture. Now this was actually covered by the plan, but they were out of network and these physical therapy um, practices specifically targeted the state employees and the school systems because they knew that these patients had very rich out-of-network benefits, all right? Typically, your out-of-network benefits is like, okay, well, you've got a different deductible and you've got higher co-insurance or a higher co-pay or whatever, but they're like, aha, we can be out of network and our patients still won't have to pay a lot because of the plan design for the state of New Jersey. And so these physical therapy classes, they would bring in donuts to the elementary schools in the morning, right? It's like, hey, Listen, up, come to our, our medical massage and our acupuncture and the, your insurance will pay for it. And these were um, super fancy facilities and they were billing the state of New Jersey in excess of $677 per session. Keep in mind, like your typical in-network doctor is only getting paid like between $80 and $150 for a visit. And here they're getting $667 per visit. And these, as a result, these physical therapists were making $200,000 to a million dollars each. One physical therapist was making $200 to a million dollars each just off of billing the state of New Jersey um, health plan members. So it was uh, a huge, and they had, there was one doctor in particular who in, in uh, excuse me, one physical therapist in particular, who billed like over 3,300 um, different patients, which meant that he was, if you break it down, um, if you do the math on it, which meant that he was seeing 18 state of New Jersey patients a day um, for all the working days of a year. Now, of course, when they tried to reach this physical therapist, they got the attorney and he would not make any comments. But here's another example of providers arguably exploiting an employer and essentially exploiting the taxpayers of New Jersey with, uh, with their practices. Okay, so one would argue, 
isn't the insurance carrier responsible for catching fraud and abuse? And in fact, insurance carriers have fraud, waste, and abuse departments within themselves. Here's the problem with the fraud, waste, and abuse departments within health insurance carriers is that they auto adjudicate claims. They just pay out claims that are less than uh, $10,000 to $15,000. So in the case of this physical therapy stuff, look, they don't even audit it. They're like, look, you're sending in claims. They fit within our claim scrubbing system. We're just going to pay it out, right? They're not necessarily even looking at it, okay? Now, employers, there's no way to police the policeman. There's no, there's no way for employers, if you're fully insured, you don't get your claims information. You just have to trust that the carrier is doing a good job. There is no way for you to audit the carrier's own fraud, waste, and abuse practices. So it's absolutely critical that we start to recognize, and those of us that have been frontline caregivers, I was a radiation oncologist, uh, we, we were so far removed from a lot of the billing and especially the billing of the radiation center. However, those of us that were in private practice and that we would uh, code our own uh, care, uh, learn to understand some of these complexities. Now, when we're on the side, I'm an older person. I have a 17 year old son. I have a wife in her fifties. I'm in my sixties. I'm starting to see from the side of being a patient, uh, the enormous risk to our patients and families. And I want to draw your attention back to what Dr. McCary said about over 60% of patients uh, will not go for care because they're afraid of the bill, even if they have great insurance, and which I do. And it turns out this year that I had to spend an enormous amount of money um, that was out of uh, the out of uh, network. Uh, and so the system of the insurance and the whole process is one that is really fraught with a lot of problems. Now, imagine how many people that are in smaller communities who have no access to understanding these things and just pay the bill and then end up having losing their homes and going bankrupt and having a, an enormous financial distress and avoiding care. And I could tell you, I used the example of a friend of mine's brother who uh, is not going to have his heart valve repaired because of the financial issues and probably will uh, eventually die at home. He's now in a pretty serious state and been to the emergency department numerous times. So uh, if we look at this graphic and we say, okay, uh, of all the submitted claims, Yes, there are a certain percentage that have fraud and abuse, okay, uh, but there are a lot of claims that are either denied or unapproved that should be paid, and you can see that here, and uh, this is another way for uh, the payers uh, to take advantage of the fact that we just don't understand the system and that we are able to be um, uh, and, and end up paying an enormous amount of money that we don't uh, understand uh, and that we can't really uh, identify as money that we should be paying. And that's where Marshall Allen's book of Don't Pay the First Bill, ask for the EOB, the explanation of benefits, and uh, start negotiating because of the enormous uh, instance of uh, instances of uh, or number of instances of upcoding and uh, even procedures and services and products and technologies that are not paid for. Uh, we'll draw your attention to a JAMA study by Dr. Schwartz at UPenn that studied 
if you were to apply the prior authorization principles to Medicare Part B patients, what would that entail? And for those that want to dig down into that, uh, Dr. Bricker addresses that as well. So now if we kind of white out uh, what should be paid and we white out the denied or prior authorization of what uh, was not approved or denied that is fraudulent, we find that there is an enormous amount of cleanly paid fraud that is costing the system an enormous amount of uh, money. Now, cleanly paid may be paid by Medicare and may be paid by the insurer, but the balance is paid by the patients and families that, again, are put in financial risk because of this block of uh, payment. The payer didn't check or the payer just went ahead and paid. The uh, recipient provider got the money uh, and you, you are stuck with the balance of that that is uh, fraudulent. So now as we look at the areas uh, that the FBI is studying, and then we'll have John Nance react to that, uh, tips for avoiding healthcare fraud, protect your healthcare insurance information, beware of free services, check your explanation of benefits to make sure that dates, services, and products and services match those, that's critically important. When we look at what the FBI is actually addressing as fraud committed by medical providers, there's double billing, billing. Those submitted multiple claims for the same service. Phantom billing, and we'll cover this again. Uh, however, uh, there's also unbundling of certain uh, components for the same service so that more money can be generated. And you saw the example of the upcoding or taking advantage of the out-of-network uh, fee structure. And then uh, when we think about uh, what fraud is committed by patients and other individuals, bogus marketing, convincing people to provide their healthcare insurance information number, right? Um, identity theft or identity swapping, which we covered in our last webinar, impersonating a healthcare professional, which we covered in July, and we're almost done with this fraudulent uh, work and this workplace violence work, these are tremendously important. And then when we think about the common types of fraud involving prescriptions, there's forgery, diversion, and doctor shopping. Forgery creating or using forged prescription. Diversion, we've covered this numerous times, at least once a year, we cover it with experts in drug diversion, both inpatient and outpatient uh, issues. And now with the fentanyl crisis, it's an even bigger problem. Uh, and doctor shopping, visiting multiple providers to get prescriptions for controlled substances, which is what we've been uh, seeing uh, happen with the one pill can kill situation where people are shopping for uh, their care to try to get uh, prescriptions. And when they can't, then they go on Snapchat, Instagram, they go on Facebook, and they find someone that will sell them what they think is a real medication. They're getting counterfeit medication. And last year, and we won't cover it today, but over 50 million doses of pills were seized last year by the DEA. And 60% of those had a lethal dose of fentanyl. So now what we'll listen to is John Nance reacting to this short list that I just gave you. 
John, this is an area that uh, you and I have not covered in great detail in this uh, many years that we've been working together in patient safety, but it's incumbent upon us to address the fraud that can occur at those hospitals, not all of them, but some of the hospitals um, and the pro doctors and medical providers in terms of double billing when they submit multiple claims for the same service, phantom billing where they bill for a service that a patient never received, unbundling, meaning that they break up the bills for the same service, and then upcoding to more complex uh, uh, billing as well. And then one that happened to me, uh, which is when the hospital says, oh yes, all the services are uh, in network for my son's heart surgery. And then the anesthesiologist sends me a bill because they say they're out of network and yet they're a hospital-based physician. Yep. So fraud committed by medical providers it's exploding and uh you know what are your thoughts there and what is your encouragement of our good organizations that kind of address this well the first thing is as george halverson who ran kaiser permanente for a long time said we don't have a system of medicine in the united states we have a great non-system and this is something that breeds uh the kind of desperation and sometimes not desperation just greed that leads to this kind of scamming um, there needs to be very, very strong law enforcement. It means that there need to be units of, uh, of every uh, investigative department, not just federal uh, and not just injustice, but to look for these things and to prosecute them to the absolute nth degree of the law, not just as fraud, but for the purpose of, of sending a message to those who would engage in this. Right now, the reason that they engage in it to such a great degree is because they don't get caught and because they don't get prosecuted. And this is when, uh, in our legal system, the one thing that works is when you get people, and DAs especially, ready to come after these folks, and you get investigative units that know how to look for this kind of fraud. Um, on top of that, well, we we do not have a system of medicine, and we've got to create one that outlaws not only in terms of legal uh, uh, prohibitions against fraud, but also in terms of hiring people who are good at this, because I guarantee you there's a certain amount of networking that goes on. John, one of the things that we know to be true is that there's very little whistleblower protection for those that are working for physicians or working for hospitals. When they know outright fraud is occurring, they really have very little protection and they have to get their own lawyers. And more often than not, they regret that they did blow the whistle. This is a societal problem because we have got to do more than just pass token laws that are very difficult to enforce. The history of whistleblowers in any strata in the United States, whether it's a federal matter, whether it's a private matter that's brought to attention, and when there are laws that are there to protect, the laws are not enough because people can lose literally uh, five or 10 years of their life trying to fight, even under laws that give them a certain degree of advantage, the sort of retaliation which goes on for a whistleblower. And yes, it's inconvenient to say the least, for, uh, for a hospital to have a whistleblower, especially if they really do consider themselves to be innocent. But the fact is we have a societal need to have whistleblowers tremendously protected, even when we know some of them are gonna be fraudulent because we need to know what's going on and we need to be able to stop this kind of thing. This fraud that is systemic now in, in the hospital system of the United States, um, is something that we could stop in its tracks if we had the societal uh, uh, determination to do so. So, John, another area of fraud is regarding prescriptions, drug prescriptions, medications, forgery, creating or using forged pre prescriptions, drug diversion, 
that could occur within the hospital, within a doctor's office, or be diverted outside of the hospital. And then finally, doctor shopping, when someone needs a substance because of their addiction and they're shopping and moving around to other doctors. After COVID, many of the safeguards, the guardrails have uh, been destroyed and many of our organizations are just struggling to deal with these problems. Your, your advice to leaders. Well, my advice to leaders is do not give up on this because we have got to bring it to the attention of the body politic of this country and every small jurisdiction. As they say, politics is all local. Uh, it starts local. We've got to get people to understand that our population has not been sufficiently educated to understand that these things are not only fraudulent, but are felonies in, in most cases. And on top of that, we've got to get DAs who are willing to prosecute and throw the people out who aren't. We have a big problem across the United States uh, in, in just telling the truth, because if you have a legal system that is based on a reasonable expectation of truth telling and nobody will tell the truth because they know they can lie without having any uh, uh, any problems legally, uh, they're going to do so. It's just human nature. And we have DAs all across the country that are not doing their duty. They're not prosecuting these things. And of course, by, uh, by reference, they're not prosecuting these drug interactions and uh, forgeries as well. Um, you know, Know, there are times that you really have to have a society turn around and say, what are we going to tolerate and what are we not going to tolerate? The fact that we've dummied down our population to the point that they don't understand law, that they don't understand that certain things are not just small hand slaps, but are you know, five or ten years in prison, that says that we've got to make a societal effort beyond what we've seen now. It's not just a matter of putting the spotlight on it because there are too many people who say, well, so what? I got by with it. Another area of fraud, John, is uh, that committed by patients or other individuals, bogus marketing, convincing people to provide their healthcare insurance number and other personal information, saying that doctors are online there and that they can get uh, something for nothing from, uh, from Medicare. Uh, not too many safeguards for that either. No, they're not. And one of the problems here is a general feeling that uh, that the system is unfair. And when a body politic begins to see the system is unfair, they begin to uh, generate the idea in their heads that it's a bit of a war and they can use any methodology they want to, whether we call it uh, fraud or we call it uh, felony or not. Uh, this, again, is, is a matter of a population that's been dummied down over 70 years of educational problems. We have got to teach law. We've got to teach people. That, uh, the, the, what the penalties really are for going outside the lines and to let them know that regardless of their feelings, if they've got a change to make, do it at the ballot box, not by uh, declaring war on the system and putting themselves at risk. Uh, these are not small problems. These are major societal problems, and they have to do with a population that simply does not believe that there's a fair system going on when they get billed. And as a matter of fact, in many cases, there isn't a fair system, but that's not the point. It really, we have to put a stop to this, or we are going to completely lose control of the ability to have anything close to fair compensation. Well, John, thank you so much. Uh, although this is not an area that we, you and I routinely deal with in terms yeah. of safety and quality, it's become a, such an enormous problem, and the financial health of our families are in jeopardy now, and it's one of the areas where we've got to keep uh, pressing forward, and we just want to thank you, John, for helping us uh, shine the light on some of these challenges that may not be specific to a drug or an operation or a medical error, but really uh, at the root of uh, being able to survive and thrive. 
It is. And thank you for all your efforts on this, Chuck. It's uh, we, we probably have to grassroots this to a certain extent, but it's something that we must not stop talking about. Well, thanks, John. So we really appreciate John Nance, uh, who's been an expert in aviation. He's a JD, former captain of one of our major airlines, has been a longstanding patient safety leader, uh, co-author on papers with us, uh, Sully Sullenberger and others, a best-selling author, and he's the ABC Good Morning America safety expert. We really appreciate his perspective on these issues. We are, we are now at... Uh, 11.07 Pacific time, so that we have uh, 23 minutes left in our program for 90 minutes for those of you that are getting continuing education units for 90 minutes and CME for 90 minutes. Uh, we will, we have really found that the healthcare fraud, what you need to know video from the OIG recently produced is excellent. And so what we'll do is the questions for the continuing education credits uh, will only cover up to the 90 minute mark, but we'll be running long today. So those of you that are on the podcast, we, uh, we uh, hope you uh, watch uh, this uh, with us and we'll have uh, Jennifer Dingman close us at the end of the full session. We'd like to thank those of you that are going to depart at 90 minutes. However, we uh, we think that this pro this uh, video is uh, very important and it will run probably for an extra 15 minutes beyond our typical time. And I'll share that with you now. And for those that uh, are going to leave us at 90 minutes, God bless you and we'll see you next month. Next month. Welcome to our first live broadcast, Healthcare Fraud, What You Need to Know. I'm Sheila Davis, a public affairs specialist with the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General, and I'm moderating today's discussion. Joining me are two healthcare fraud experts, OIG's Assistant Inspector General for Investigations, Shimon Richman, and Dr. Michael Cohen, an Operations Officer with the Office of Investigations. Together, they have 25 years of fraud fighting experience. If you have questions during our discussion, please send them via Facebook. And if you're watching us on Twitter, tweet using the hashtag, AskAnInvestigator. So let's get started. Healthcare fraud wastes taxpayer dollars and can significantly harm people and patients, including those who have Medicare or Medicaid. Shimon, can you start by explaining what healthcare fraud is and maybe share a few of the most common schemes? My pleasure, Sheila. Healthcare fraud is a crime of theft and a crime of deception. Uh, and because of that deception, oftentimes the fraud looks like just the provision of regular healthcare services on its surface. It may not be apparent to the naked eye that something is actually wrong. Uh, as we dig into our healthcare fraud investigations, we find a variety of common schemes. Uh, the first is uh, billing for services not rendered. Uh, it's very simply billing for things that never occurred, or maybe billing for uh, a, a wheelchair or a back brace or something that the patient never received. Uh, we also see frequently inflating of services. Um, so you may have a patient that went to a doctor and they had, for example, their blood drawn, had some lab tests. Uh, but in addition to the tests that they actually did undergo, uh, the, the lab or the provider bills for additional tests uh, that weren't, didn't actually occur, just in order to inflate the reimbursement from Medicare and Medicaid and increase their profits. Uh, and Mike, what, what have you seen? Uh, in addition to that, you may see some misrepresentation of services. So maybe a non-covered service that's actually billed as a covered service. So 
Uh, for example, someone may be getting massages and they'll bill it as um, like uh, 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 physical therapy, something like that. In the world of pharmaceuticals, we may see uh, drugs that are expensive, uh, specialty drugs that are billed and not dispensed uh, or medically unnecessary services. DME supplies like back braces and knee braces and neck braces, that type of thing. Uh, di diabetes testing strips uh, that, aren't, that aren't requested or, or uh, needed, uh, or most recently genetic testing, which we can talk about as well. Okay. Um, so how does healthcare fraud impact a person? Walk me through what someone might experience from unmedic unnecessary medical tests or being charged for services that they didn't need. Well, you can imagine the medical tests on their face are not, not pleasant to go through anyway, much less going through unnecessary blood draws or uh, procedures such as biopsies or something that weren't even necessary to begin with. Uh, also, uh, you may get, we see people getting imaging studies, which involves radiation. We even had an oncologist a few years ago that was falsely diagnosing people with cancer and was giving them radiation therapy as well as chemotherapy. So that was a really egregious example. And this is done so that the providers can bill more despite it, it the was, best needs of the patient. It, it was all just to make money. It was just greed. Okay. Uh, Shimon? You know, in, in addition to the potential physical harm or, or uh, uh, issues that patients can endure, they also uh, face some financial risk, uh, as well as risk to their benefits. Um, in the financial arena, they may incur, you know, expensive co-pays and other costs that uh, aren't medically necessary and the otherwise wouldn't incur if the provider was acting in their best interest, uh, as opposed to uh, looking to increase their bottom line. Additionally, there are many benefits that have limits. And so if those benefits are, are exhausted in Medicare's view because they've been billed, for example, say for a power wheelchair that they actually didn't receive or didn't need, uh, and then uh, you know, some time elapses and that patient develops a legitimate medical need for that power wheelchair, uh, in Medicare's view, uh, that claim may be denied because Medicare believes they've already been provided one, and so they're no longer eligible to receive uh, you know, that item or that service. And so it can cause real uh, uh, problems for a patient's benefits uh, should they legitimately need them at a later point in time. So it can cause physical harm and financial harm. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so now we've heard about some common schemes. Can you give the viewer some tips on how they can protect themselves? Certainly. Uh, some of the uh, quick and easy things that all patients can do. Um, first and foremost, look at that letter that comes in the mail, that explanation of benefits that, that comes in the mail from Medicare that lists on there what items and services Medicare is paying on behalf of the patient. Um, for example, uh, check if the date of service uh, on, on that uh, explanation of benefits uh, it looks, uh, lines up with the date that you last went to the provider. See if you recognize the provider name on there that is billing services to Medicare and if that is in fact one of your, your doctors. Uh, and, and maybe scan through quickly. This all takes a matter of seconds to look through the services being billed and, and if those uh, line up with the services that you received when you went to your, uh, to your doctor. Uh, and and if, if somebody on Medicare is reviewing that statement and they see something that isn't correct, um, should they call their doctor first? When do they reach out to the OIG if they may, if they may suspect fraud? Those EOB statements can be very complicated to, to weed through, so sometimes it's best just pick up the phone and call your provider, and sometimes they can clear it up right over the phone. Beyond that, if you still have some questions or the answers weren't uh, what you thought they would be, you can uh, reach out if you have uh, uh, an issue with your benefits 
the 1-800-MEDICARE or the uh, SHIP program, the state health insurance program, who can discuss the, the, uh, the benefits and, and what you've received. Uh, if you're thinking more along the lines uh, of fraud, you can start out with uh, Senior Medicare Patrol who can go over your, your statement and the provision of care. And if they think that there's something uh, that doesn't look right, uh, they can assist you in reporting it to our hotline, our 1-800-TIPS. Oh, HHS tips and reported as fraud. Okay. And that's really important that it's very easy and accessible for folks to report their concerns or suspected fraud to us either through the hotline at 1-800-HHS-TIPS or through our website at oig.hhs.gov. Okay. Great. So we've talked about now reviewing uh, the explanation of benefits and Medicare summary notice. What else are some of the, the things that might be common in scams? You talk about what people should do to protect themselves. So if, say, they're approached by somebody at a health fair or they get a knock on the door or the phone rings. Well, it, 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 that's, a, that's a great point, Sheila, because we do commonly see um, uh, patients fall prey to scammers and healthcare uh, fraudsters um, in parking lots of shopping centers and other stores uh, being approached and solicited for a product or for a service. Uh, at a, walking by a kiosk in the mall and, and or through uh, an unsolicited phone call, uh, marketing to them, you know, some product or some service like a cancer screening test um, that is at no cost to you and Medicare will pay, you know, 100%, you know, of the cost. And um, the most important uh, piece of advice that we can give patients is know who you're dealing with. Um, when I want care, I, I, I identify uh, the doctor that I, have, I know and I have trust and, and confidence in and I seek out that care. Um, don't accept uh, uh, care or device uh, services or products from, from someone that you don't know and certainly don't uh, hand over your Medicare or your other uh, uh, benefit information uh, to someone that you don't know and that you don't trust. Mike, anything else to yeah, add? So, sometimes uh, patients have told us that uh, when they get, receive these solicitations, that your doctor told me to call you type of thing. So if, if you don't think that that's the case, call your doctor first before you engage with them. Uh, we've even seen people coming door to door and knocking. Um, so you have to be very careful just because they're in scrubs doesn't always mean that they're medical professionals. And it's important to remember that um, uh, Medicare doesn't call patients and ask for their information or solicit services to them. Uh, so if someone calls a patient and, and is uh, marketing themselves as calling from Medicare, um, that's, be, a red flag. that's a red flag. That's a red flag. Be, be, be very wary. Right, because Medicare has their information. Absolutely. There's no need for Medicare to call. And a lot of times they will use uh, sound-alike names. You can form a corporation that's called Medicare, and when you answer the phone and they say, I'm from Medicare, it sounds like they're from the government agency rather than a, uh, a creation of their own company. So the same principle would apply though. They should still follow up with, they can contact Medicare, a beneficiary can contact Medicare or contact their doctor. Contact their doctor. To confirm would be the anything before giving any information. Okay, all right, so let's go to the next question. Um, tell us what you all are doing on the ground to combat healthcare fraud. Well, our viewers should know that uh, the OIG is an organization uh, over 1,600 strong of professional uh, federal law enforcement agents, uh, attorneys, analysts, uh, data scientists, auditors, program evaluators um, that are leveraging a multidiscipline approach to uh, detect, prevent, and, and deter, uh, root out fraud, waste, and abuse um, throughout the programs. And in doing so, we leverage partnerships 
at the federal, state, and local level with our other law enforcement agencies and health organizations and, and state agencies uh, in order to harness the power of kind of our collective uh, tools and abilities uh, in order to protect the patients and the taxpayer. So um, actually, Mike, can you tell us a little bit about the exclusions program? Maybe just explain what an exclusion is and how that can help to protect uh, people and patients. We consider participation in the Medicare program a privilege. So for individuals that have committed a health care fraud, uh, we uh, eliminate them from being able to bill our federal health care programs in the future, and they are put on an exclusion list so that they can no longer do that. It could be a, for a short period of time, or it could be a lifetime exclusion, depending on what they did wrong, um, and then they can no longer harm our, our beneficiaries in the future. Thank you, guys. So now we're going to give the audience a chance to ask questions. If you have a question, please type it in the Facebook Live feed. Or you can, follow, you can uh, tweet us by using hashtag AskAnInvestigator. We do have some questions to get us started. So the first question, what if someone calls you saying they're from Medicare and requests your personal information over the phone? What should people do? Well, again, you know, we go back to the point we made earlier. Um, Medicare doesn't call you, um, so uh, certainly don't uh, give out your, your Medicare information over the phone. Frankly, I'd say hang up. Um, but if, in fact, uh, they are marketing some service or some product that a patient has an interest in and, and they think that they may need that to improve their care, well, that's okay. Take that information and go back and consult your primary care physician, your, your doctor that you know and that you trust and they can advise you on how to proceed if in fact it's something that will will uh, benefit in your care. So they can take that information but they should not give any of their personal information, Absolutely name not. or anything else. Patients should protect their uh, Medicare information, their ID, uh, the same way they would uh, protect their uh, bank account information or their, or their driver's license or other sensitive documents and, and don't uh, put that in the hands of anyone that they don't know. Okay, uh, next question. So somebody says, I'm getting frequent calls from Medicare services, and for free Medicare services, excuse me, and I'm told that they have a physician standing by to talk to me about the product or service. Should I do so if I'm interested? Um, a lot of that goes back to the same answer that, that Shimon gave before. First of all, nothing's free. Um, somebody's paying for that. Um, and a lot of times the, the fraudulent companies will waive the co-pays for a lot of these items as well, which is illegal. So there is a cost to the, the beneficiary for some of these services, so you have to be careful with that. Um, so when they tell you that it's at no cost to you, there, there's always a cost involved, and you should never engage with them directly on the phone or a door-to-door -door solicitation. Okay, so actually that leads into the next question. Um, if I see signs in clinics that offer free services for people on Medicare, is that legitimate? You know, again, uh, anytime, you know, there's that old saying, you know, nothing in life is free. And so, you know, our, our recommendation is that folks should always be wary uh, and, and be very careful uh, when things are marketed to them as absolutely free. And if they have questions about their, their benefits and if it's legitimately covered by Medicare or, or is, is indeed free, meaning there's no out-of-pocket cost to the patient, um, then they should uh, call Medicare. Uh, or they could talk with a patient advocate and they can, uh, you know, ex uh, clarify any uh, benefits and, and coverage determinations to know whether this is legitimate or whether there's something fishy going on. So they should use their judgment and the information that you have provided of reach out to a trusted provider yeah. first. Okay. 
So we do have a question from Facebook, and the question is, how are you helping physicians to detect fraud? So it's a, it's a great question. Um, the OIG doesn't just engage in enforcement um, and audits and, and litigation um, to deal with uh, fraud, but uh, as an organization, we engage in uh, events like this, as well as many others, to outreach and education um, to the industry. Uh, our, uh, our agents frequently will, and representatives of OIG, will speak at conferences and uh, trade groups and, and others in order to, uh, again, educate providers on uh, the, uh, what fraud is and what it isn't, uh, what is uh, accidental and, and, and the difference between uh, intentional fraud. Uh, in order to help them uh, avoid the mistakes uh, or the temptations uh, to engage in, 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 uh, in these illicit schemes. Also, the Office of Counsel will give industry guidance. So if they have a question as to whether a business arrangement or something may or may not be uh, acceptable or legal or violate a law, they can inquire and, and they can get an industry guidance review of it. So that's OIG's team of attorneys yes. that can advise on a legal side to make sure providers are in compliance with the And rules. that's done on a case-by-case -case basis. Okay. And there's an incredible amount of information available on our website at oig.hhs.gov, um, both for educating providers, uh, uh, patients, and, and the industry at large. Thank you. So we have another question. Uh, please differentiate between a billing error and outright fraud. I don't think you want to have beneficiaries accusing their providers of fraud. That, that would be correct, and that goes back to what Shimon said earlier, the difference between accidental billing and, and actual fraud. There's no such thing as accidental fraud. Fraud is a, a crime. There has to be an intent. You know that the, the bill is wrong, and then you submit it anyway with the intent of getting paid for it. So that's the, the criminal aspect of it. If you want to question your provider about a billing statement, uh, don't be accusatory because like I said before, these bills can be very difficult to uh, figure out what is actually contained in them. Uh, just ask them to go over it with you. And then uh, if you still have questions, there's uh, SFP and SHIP and your health plan and others that can help you with that. And, and it's important to remember that the vast majority of providers um, are out there doing the right thing and, and operating in good faith to try to take care of patients' health care needs. Um, unfortunately, it's our job to deal with uh, the smaller portion of that population um, that are knowingly engaging in criminal acts and, and taking advantage of uh, patients and, and stealing from the taxpayer. Um, but the other thing that we do at, at OIG is that we work closely with the Department of Health and Human Services and, and specifically the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services um, to identify ways to strengthen the programs and to uh, differentiate on the front end uh, between uh, errors uh, and, and uh, potential vulnerabilities uh, through, through billing mistakes uh, versus uh, out, outright fraud uh, and those uh, schemes that look to take advantage of the system. Okay. Um, here's another question. If someone has my Medicare ID number, what harm am I exposed to? For example, in, if a home caregiver may have, hold on one second, excuse me. For example, can I give my home caregiver my ID number? So uh, again, our recommendation is um, know who you're, you're giving your information to and know who you're receiving care from. 
Um, unfortunately, many times we will see uh, providers that will trick a patient into, through some of these marketing ploys or other tactics, uh, into turning over their Medicare information, and oftentimes they, they may act or call on the phone acting as if they're Medicare, uh, they're calling from Medicare. Um, remember that once you turn over that information, uh, it is no longer in your control. And so, uh, unfortunately, we frequently see where a fraudulent provider will uh, will bill not just for maybe a service. You know, they they convinced you, Sheila, to give me your Medicare information, and we'll get you. We'll send you a cheek swab, and you can get a, a free cancer screening test to identify your risk of of getting cancer later in life. And Medicare will pay for it. It's not going to cost you a penny. Um, and they may turn around and do that, uh, and you may not be aware that that's actually a fraudulent bill because Medicare doesn't cover curiosity uh, screening tests for, for cancer. Um, but they may also then turn around and take your information and pass that on or, or either use it themselves to bill for other services that you had no idea that, that they were going to bill for and you didn't receive. Or, or they may even take that and sell that to someone else uh, that is going to use your information, again, to continue to bill Medicare or Medicaid or even private insurance for other, if you have it, for, mm -hmm. for other services or items um, that you have no idea is, is occurring. We see a lot of these lists wind up on the dark web and then not only do you have to worry about medical identity theft, but there could be other kinds of theft as well where they could take your identity, open accounts in your name and that type of thing. And so for vulnerable populations, people who are you know at home and require care, is it ever appropriate for that caretaker to ask for the person's Medicare? It would be unusual, not necessarily uh, inappropriate, but usually before the individual comes out to provide that care, that exchange of information has already occurred between your doctor's office and the home health agency. Um, like Shimon said, if you know who the provider is, they're already providing you care, that's probably pretty safe, as opposed to someone that just knocks on the door or gives you a phone call. But the important thing is patients should remember that, that they are in the driver's seat. They're the gatekeeper. It's their information, and they have the right to ask questions and to gain additional information in order to feel comfortable with turning over their, uh, their Medicare information. And they shouldn't allow any provider, and they should be very uh, ask a lot of questions if, in fact, they feel like a provider or someone pretending to be a provider is bullying them into turning that information over. Uh, the patient's in the driver's seat. You're in control. Can you provide new methods to identify fraud, waste, or abuse? So maybe uh, new investigative techniques or tactics that you all are doing. I know uh, we're really moving on the forefront of data analytics. So uh, we, uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, we don't discuss uh, some of the cutting edge investigative technology or investigative techniques, law enforcement techniques that we use. Uh, in, in furtherance of our investigations. But uh, certainly we can say that OI, at OIG we are harnessing the power of modern technology uh, and advanced data analytics in order to uh, identify uh, potential fraud, to detect it early on, uh, and then to, as close to real time as possible, uh, address uh, that f the fraudulent activity, um, both to hold accountable bad actors as well as to prevent uh, maybe a, a, an emerging fraud scheme from spreading uh, into a broader national problem. Okay, and actually, Mike, can you just give the viewers um, some perspective in terms of how data has helped us work faster and smarter. Um, do you have any examples off the tip of your tongue of, you know, years ago it used to take X amount of time to get this data and now we're able to see things more in real time? Most of our investigations are 
originated early mm -hmm. on, they spawned off of other investigations. Um, these days we're doing more proactive approach and looking at the data and we're able to uh, move very quickly when we see an anomaly in the data. So our whole mindset and the way we approach things has drastically changed just in the past couple of years. We were talking about genetic testing a little bit ago. Uh, we did a massive effort to move forward with that, um, with our data analytics and, and jumped on that massive fraud right away. Okay. Hey, we have another question. How do you foresee the proposed rule changes of the Stark Law anti-kickbacks will help reduce fraud, waste, and abuse? Well, it's, it, it's important to understand that at, at the end of the day, what, when we are conducting healthcare fraud investigations, we are uh, looking for a lie, a theft. And so uh, addressing that underlying theft, that lie, that deception of the patient or of the American taxpayer um, doesn't change the foundation of our law enforcement efforts. Uh, what we will continue to do is engage in uh, education, uh, both to, to the industry and to the patients, uh, in terms of you know, how these uh, changes uh, to the law uh, affect them. Uh, our Office of Counsel puts out some uh, excellent uh, industry guidance uh, that can help uh, providers understand what the differences mean or what the, the, the changes mean. Um, and at the end of the day, if a provider is, is doing the right thing, and are putting patients above profits and, and uh, upholding their Hippocratic Oath, and they have nothing to be concerned of. Um, however, those uh, doctors out there that would uh, take advantage of the patients and, and would steal from, uh, from the taxpayer and from the American public, um, the, they should know that we will be coming for them and we will hold them accountable. Okay. Another question. How many people call the Medicare tip line annually? Are there any new... Oh, there we go. That's the end of that question. Uh, well, past couple of years, it's it's been in the tens of thousands. I, I, I think yep. it's 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 a lot. We get a lot lot of calls to our to our hotline every year. It's uh, both through through our website uh, portal uh, as well as through uh, through the hotline, the one eight hundred HHS tips number. Uh, the thousands and thousands of, of calls uh, every year. Um, and it's important uh, that the viewers know that we do assess those. Um, they don't just go into oblivion, um, but we have a team of folks that, that work very diligently on, uh, on going through that information and uh, making sure that it gets in the hands of the right people to address it, uh, whether that's within our agency, at other agencies, uh, whether it's a matter for an agent to go investigate in the field or for our office of counsel to look at uh, uh, in a different arena. And actually to follow up with that, because we get this question a lot, Mike, can you just address the issue of when people say, I called in, I reported a tip, and I haven't heard anything? Yeah, that's a, that's a common question that, that, that people have. Um, when someone calls in and we start an investigation, we can't go publicizing that we're, we're, we're doing an investigation. So we have to uh, uh, look at the data of, of what's, what's occurring, and we may be doing some sort of an investigation. We may already have that individual uh, under investigation, um, but we don't loop back with individuals and tell them about open and active investigations. We just can't. So most of the time they should not expect No, to we have to worry about operational security dur during an investigation and uh, the rights and privacy uh, of the uh, provider as well. Um, so we, we, don't, we don't give feedback on, on 
the stages of the investigation. At some point, if the investigation comes to a conclusion, it's, it's publicly announced and they'll be able to find out if there was something that came out of that. Okay. Are there any other new schemes out there besides genetic testing and the BRACE scheme? Anything else that you all are seeing that you are able to share? There's, al there's always new iterations of the old schemes sort, sort of things, whether it be pharmaceuticals or the, um, uh, the, the BRACE scams. Uh, there's always new Medicare rules coming out that people try to find holes in and, and try to generate new, new, new ways around something that we're doing. So it's not always that there's, there's uh, a, a new scam going on. It's, it's just a re-swizzling of, of the old one. Uh, recently there was a um, uh, there was a, an ear acupuncture um, device that was being being uh, sold, and what they were billing for was an implantable um, nerve stimulator. So uh, again, that goes back to what we said at, at, at your original question. It's a provision of uh, a non-covered service that was billed as a covered service. So that was an example of something that came up just recent. And one of the most pervasive trends in, in healthcare fraud right now is the use of, of telemarketing um, to solicit, solicit patients for products or for services um, that they may or may not need um, under the guise of telemedicine. Um, and so it's important to, uh, for patients to be aware uh, of the difference between true telemedicine where uh, perhaps they've sought out care from a provider and they've had interaction with a provider and, and consulted with that provider about their health care uh, needs and, and services and, and received uh, services from that doctor um, versus someone calling them out of the blue and marketing to them uh, for a product or for a health care service that not in the best interest that they the may patient. or may not even need or they weren't they weren't looking for. and some of the tele telemarketing companies we're finding recently are not even in this country they're, they're calling from overseas interesting all right how often should people and vendors be checked against the exclusions list so this is uh, this is really important, and not all of you, the viewers may understand. But the exclusions list is is essentially like Mike talked about before. When when we find a bad actor and and we and they are held accountable, uh, whether it's through a, a criminal conviction or otherwise, um, we will take it a, 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 the the we essentially we'll, we'll boot them out of the program through an exclusion, so that they can no longer bill Medicare or Medicaid or other federal health care programs um, at all. And so uh, providers and, and healthcare companies out there have an obligation um, to, to check uh, against the, the exclusions list that, that is publicly available to ensure that they're not inadvertently employing someone or they're not facilitating uh, indirectly billing to Medicare and Medicaid by someone who's been barred uh, from the program. Is it every time they bring on a new employee or we update our exclusions list each month? Um, is it every time a new employee comes on board they should check it? It should be checked every time you bring a new employee on board because if you build on behalf of that employee for a couple of years and then you found out they were excluded, um, all of that money has to be paid back. Those were not legitimate claims that were submitted. All right. So I think this will be our last question here. So how can a provider know what the current schemes are being played out or what current schemes are being played out in their area? Well, one of the easiest ways that a provider can, you know, uh, be aware of what's going on in their area um, is to follow our website. Um, there's uh, information or, or 
uh, uh, or I'm sure in any of our social media uh, feeds. Um, but on the website, there's frequently information, uh, press releases, uh, and others, both for uh, federal uh, law enforcement action against healthcare providers in different areas, as well as uh, state action, say, by the Medicaid fraud control units. And the Senior Medicare Patrol in the local area will have whatever the local flavor is for the frauds in their particular area, so they may want to reach out to them as well. All right. Well, uh, great tips. Thank you both for those answers and sharing that valuable information with our viewers. So that's a wrap for us. We know there are a few questions that we didn't get to, so we'll follow up in the comments section after we wrap. Thank you for watching. And together, we can fight healthcare fraud and help to protect people and patients. Thanks again to Shimon and Mike for joining us. And if you suspect healthcare fraud, waste, or abuse, please report it to our fraud hotline. And for more information, visit our website at oig.hhs.gov. Thank you. So that uh, so we've run just a little bit long today. We are really, really grateful for having uh, this terrific group of speakers, reactors, presenters uh, during our workplace violence and fraud series. And uh, we're, we're very, very grateful uh, to have you all uh, share this with us. We're interested in kind of moving uh, beyond that back to uh, uh, some of the areas that we're uh, that are closer to our patient safety and quality teams, but we thought that this was really a vital area where we've really got some critical critical needs. And we'll close with, uh, uh, with uh, Jennifer Dingman again, longtime champion of patient safety, family safety, and quality. She's been a co-author of papers, and she's been an advisor on nonprofit and government programs and public-private par partnerships, and we're just grateful to have her close us. That was very good. I want to thank all of our speakers for being here today. I myself recently found tests that I never took in my patient portal. I'm trying to deal with it, but um, it was obviously an error of some sort. And um, this is a very, very important issue. And I urge everyone to always look at your bills and look at the procedures and find out exactly what you're being charged for with your insurance. I want to thank everyone for being here today and looking forward to next month's program. Please share the recording with your friends, family members, and colleagues. Thank you very much. God bless. So we really are so grateful for her steadfast support, Jenny, has been terrific. And as all, we always close with our MedTAC program and our TMIT national and global research test bed, uh, that we want to fight the good fight, we want to finish the race, and we want to keep the faith uh, because everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. And this really applies to this area as well. Uh, God bless you. And we hope to see you next uh, month. And for those that are on the podcast, please go to our website, www.safetyleaders.org. And you may download the slides and further resources. Thank you very much. And that ends our webinar for October of 2023.